We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Eight Black Hands podcast. So, so happy to be, oh my God, to be back home and to be back with my brothers. We have a guest. So we got the whole crew in today. But instead of introducing these guys that you talk to every single week, I'm going to jump right in to introducing our guests. So with us, we have Dr. Santalisas, uh, and I might mispronounce. I'm trying to get that right, but I'm, I'm trying to be conscious about that. Uh, she is the CEO of Baltimore City Public Schools. Uh, and previously, she served as the vice president for K-12 policy and practice at the Education Trust, providing strategic direction for the organization's K-12 research, practice, and policy work. Before joining the Education Trust, Sonia was the chief academic officer for Baltimore City Public Schools. Sonia became Sonia came to Baltimore City Schools from Boston, where she served as assistant superintendent for pilot schools and assistant superintendent for teaching and learning professional development. Sonia began her career in education as director of professional development and teacher placement with Teach for America New York, followed by stints at a year-round school in Brooklyn, where she was a founder, teacher, and curriculum specialist. She holds a bachelor degree from Brown University, a master of arts and education admin from Columbia, uh, we have a fellow Colombian on our podcast and a doctor of education in administration, planning and social policy from Harvard. Everybody, fellas, can we give a good welcome to Dr. Santalises? How are you? Welcome. Welcome. Woo. So happy to have you. So happy there's to have lot, you. There's, there's a lot in that bio, man. A, I know, man. And that's the I'm, short version, man. I, I, it was a longer one. I was. I got uh, tired. I'm walking off. It that was just tough. means I'm old. That just means I'm old. <laughs> you know, it was hard because I didn't. It was certain things I didn't want to leave off, and it'd be like, you know, it's, all right. it's like don't be disrespecting my name like that in these streets. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I don't want that beef. You feel me? Uh, so before the fellas jump in, just. I gave you, I, I gave the the beginning, but do you want to tell yeah. us a little bit more about your journey to getting to this point? And part of the reason I'm asking that is you are a black superintendent, CEO over schools. And um, we know that there, there's not many of you here that's doing this work. So uh, any insight to how you got to that, you know, got to this point, I think might be helpful for a lot of our viewers, a lot of our listeners and viewers. Yeah, I, th I think what's most interesting and it, it's I still wake up mornings when it feels really weird to be doing this because I was one of those folks who never thought that the last position I would be in would be a superintendent head. I actually or the head of the district. I actually started out teaching, as you noted, um, in in Brooklyn and in Bed-Stuy and like a lot of African-Americans, you know, was of that generation where, you know, my parents, at least my mother initially was like, why in God's name would you want to go and teach when, you know, you know how that is. And it, there was a time when black women could only teach or marry a minister. And so why would you go into this? And then my father, who was thrilled because he didn't want just another bougie black daughter. So he was happy <laughs> that I went in and um, went into Bed-Stuy. And that's when I... Um, 
you know, after I left Teach for America and went in and started um, teaching and helping found the school and actually thought that a school superintendent was the least important job in an entire system while I was teaching. And really from that, I really started thinking about it when I got into the program, was going to do graduate work. And a friend of mine, Cesar McDowell, who used to work with the Algebra Project, said the program, you know, at Harvard was a good way to get a doctorate, right? And I said, well, as long as they know, I don't ever want to be a superintendent. Um, And, you know, along the way, I'm one of those people who did the things I did because it, it required being done, right? And so I landed in this, and I tell young people that, Um, and I mean younger in the profession, that you never know what the trajectory is going to be. There isn't one trajectory. When I was coming in, it was considered odd that I hadn't gone like teacher to assistant principal to principal to central office. You know, I went, spent some time with the algebra project, then jumped back in, you know, to grad school, came to Baltimore from Boston, um, and then left Baltimore for a bit and went to work for Ed Trust. So one of the things that I actually love about my career and the way God's kind of ordered that is I've been in and out of school systems. And when, when I need to, I can take on those various lenses and kind of see how people are viewing us, meaning where I am now in a school district from those lens, right? So, you know, working with Bob Moses and the Algebra Project, I get the activist lens, right? working with um, Katie Haycock and the Ed Trust team, you know, I understand federal activism. I've also done some consulting in between. So I know how for-profit people um, think. So it's, and I understand both the skepticism, but also the difference between managing organizations that are not for profit, for profit, and public and the challenges with within each of them. So I actually have an interesting pathway. And that's why I tell young people, don't worry about being pigeonholed. Um, you do what you feel like is going to build your experience. And particularly, I have found that a lot of young African-Americans in the field don't always get the career advice that says it's OK for you to develop other skills. Um, in other kinds of settings. I think that's changed now more so, but that, that for me is really important. So there, there have been mentees that I have said, you need to go do something else. You've been in the same district your entire career. You need some, you need some time just to see the world differently. So that's how I ended up. I never left. I love education. And if I'm going to do it, I told somebody, Originally, I was, and nobody believes this, by the way, anymore. My, when my husband and I got married, the plan was I was going to consult one day, I mean, one week a month, and I was going to homeschool our three daughters. I had researched black homeschooling, and I was going to do that. Now, people in Baltimore laugh when I say that. They're like, well, you are a long way from that. And I said, yeah, I am. So, yeah, so I, I do this. I came back to be CEO, to be honest, because I was living in Baltimore City still even though I worked in DC and I, like a lot of people felt like, um, my city, my schools, um, my kids were being misrepresented and there was, there was the vacuum there. And so that, that's why I landed here. Some of you have heard me say this, that this is my one and only superintendency. I'm not doing this again. 
Um, so I'm going to go hard and as long as I can in Baltimore, but I am not doing this position in a way that I can be sure I'm going to do it again. And I think that's also, that changes a little bit about how you do the work because I'm not, you know, if you tick somebody off, you tick them off and you move on. And it is what it is. So anyway, was that too much? Nah, no, let's, let's, let's tick some people off. Can you, can you talk about <laughs> like, uh, like what does educational justice look like in Baltimore? Like how, what's the road to equity? What is, how, how do you envision arriving um, yeah. to educational justice for, for students in Baltimore city? <sighs> yeah. Man, that that really is a dinner conversation. Um, But I would say where we are now, I I think of it as both tearing certain things down at the same time that you're building, right? Like you've got to do both. You don't have the luxury. And you all know this. You don't have the luxury in the middle of a bureaucratic infrastructure, I don't think, of just saying, let's start everything all over. I know there are folks who think that's the approach, um, but it's, it's a combination of ripping some things out and putting other things in, um, in Baltimore Can you be city. specific too? Like, what do you, yeah. what do you have to, what yeah. are the institutions or the, what I call steel cobwebs yeah. in, in districts and bureaucracies? What, what, what are your, um, what do you call those Jones metal cutters? Like what, what yeah. are you bringing and what are you cutting? Yeah. So part of what we're cutting, part of what we had to cut and, and some of this was, operating from my view, right? So the first thing we went after was what is happening every day with young people in teaching and learning. And some, some of you all know this, um, but, you know, we went after curriculum first because I went in and teachers were telling me they were confused about what to teach. Um, what I saw was not at a level that I would want for my own girls or that I knew. So we went after curriculum first because that's what people were talking about. Um, I think within that, there is a, there's a standard, there's dual needs, right? To bring the learning up to the standard that we know um, young people need if we're going to say they're really prepared, right? And you know this, like, you know, Black kids have dreams. Like for some of them, you know, they will rattle off, I want to be a doctor or a ball player or whatever. The challenge is having the skills to get there. And and part of what it is meant has been ripping off the Band-Aid of what does instruction, what does curriculum look like that does that? So that's part A. But the other piece with that is I re-entered into a city where young people, families, community members, everyone kind of post, you know, everybody says the uprising or, you know, Freddie, all that was, was a, was another eruption around a long history of frustration with injustice, racial injustice, particularly in Baltimore. And so when I came back, it couldn't just be that, right? And so what it also looks like is what how are young people walking into healthy situations? And that's, that's hard in a lot of our schools. And I'm just, I mean, I'm not telling you all anything you don't know, but in Baltimore, that shift from an overly punitive, what I call kind of sharecropping mentality Mm. of, of, you know, schooling in terms of like, how do you balance order but not substitute control for order, right? Like there's an order to education, 
But oftentimes in majority black schools, we substitute, and Baltimore is no exception to that, we substitute kind of micromanaging order at every level instead of doing the hard work to say, what does a healthy school culture look like? And, and that is wrapped up in discussions of race equity. And we are just starting those. And I'm going to be on, you know, look, I'm going to be straight. We're just starting it because it took me a long time to find someone I trusted to lead that work without just making it catchphrases. And so we've begun that. And a lot of it is internalized, internalized the systems. And so, you know, we had, we had young people saying, um, you know, things like we don't, feel like we belong and parents telling and still tell too many stories about, you know, kind of re-traumatizing situations in schools. And so we need a lot of our work has been, how do you have honest discussions about that and have real frames to restructure those conversations and, you know, not over-programatize it. So you need some kind of programs to help people understand what it looks like in a classroom or a school. But we also have to be real careful of not just throwing the latest program at something. So we've we've been kind of sifting through that. And to do that in a city that is struggling with violence right now um, is just it's an added layer. And it's an added layer because you have staff who quite bluntly are dealing, you know, with their own um, you know, their own challenges of navigating Baltimore City. So I'd, I'd say, you know, that's why we have had our three focus, right? It's wholeness and wholeness is around that culture piece and that climate piece. It's about literacy because if you can't read and write well, the rest of it, we're just kidding ourselves. And then I'd say leadership because unless we have everybody as part of the problem solving, um, you know, it's, this is not a top-down city. It's just not going to work that way. After people started questioning, um, you know, the structures of government, it meant education was part of that. And so to just say, here, we're just going to do this and wait, you know, that's not going to work. So this whole idea of people leading from their seats and, and investing in positions and people in positions, like paraprofessionals and secretaries, <laughs> who come from the community and never were the ones getting professional development, right? It was always the folks who had, had been in schools for a long time, who, and, and in a lot of ways were the closest connections to the community, were the ones that were least invested in. And we have really tried to flip the switch on that. Um, and how do, how do we give, you know, a Mama B or a Kim Trueheart, and these are people who are kind of known for agitating me <laughs> from time to time. And, they, you know, they're doing, their, they're doing their job. But what I love about both of those women um, is they, they will bring it when they want to hold the system accountable for something, but they will also bring it when you need support. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the piece for me that I think, you know, those are the three, the, those are the places we started. Those are the places we started. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, particularly around this idea of confronting people and, you know, racial biases, you know, we can't say that it happens outside of schools and then it magically just dissipates when, you know, a teacher walks into a school. That same racial bias that that uh, Black people rebelled against 
you know, with uh, Freddie Gray's murder, it's a similar thread to what students experience year after year after year in, inside our schools. Yeah. And I will tell you what's interesting about the truth is we, our board wanted an equity policy, right? Mm. And, you know, I tend to be one of these cut to the chase people. So that's why on my team, I always need people who like remind me, Sonia, you got to look at what like people need. I just want to get to the work. Mm. And I was like, well, okay, why do we need a policy? We know we need to be doing it, right? <laughs> like, let's just start doing it. And to your point, right. our, we had a number of leaders in the community who said to us, we need the district, we need as Baltimore, as black Baltimore, we need you to formally acknowledge that this system has not done what it should do and has contributed to, right? The bifurcation of the city, the, um, to your point, like to, to the racist infrastructure of that, if, and, and that's gonna go a long way, Sonia, and you see it as just a foregone conclusion, but for Baltimore, it's not a foregone conclusion. And so you need to name it. And that's what we did. And that's, that's a place where I had to step back and, and change my orientation and say, wait a minute, hold up. You know, folks need this because they don't trust us. And so we, we have to go that mile to actually acknowledge that, that we messed up and we were part of the same system. Before I throw it to Ray and Chris, um, the, I guess one of the follow-up questions to everything you just said is, what do you think, and, and, I, and I love that you like to just cut to the chase. So this is one of those questions, right? Like, yeah. what has been the biggest barrier for you? What, is, like, what are you fighting through? <laughs> Man, I think the biggest barrier has just been an, uh, an overwhelming sense within so many pockets of this region that um, nothing's going to change. And it's the same old, same old. And that, that is hard, right? Like that kind of lack of of wanting to 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 believe that something could actually change i think is difficult and running into the other um you know the other systems that make it hard and i come from you know i come from a school of educators that you know look you control what you control and you don't control what you don't control but you know i i got to tell you it's it's rough when you're trying to get kids to summer jobs or AP programs or stuff. And, you know, you don't have a transportation system. You got a, you've got a bus system that's circa 1960 in any other city. And, and that, that part is difficult. I mean, the difficult is that that same in transients that I think we find a lot of places, but that that's the hardest part. So just to, just, just to follow up on that part, if, if, if some of your parents and students were listening right now to this episode and it was, you, you talked about the belief and the belief that these things can change and mm-hmm. somebody who's also worked in the system and worked in the superintendent's office, um, that's something that we face, but it's also a realization that, we had to make, and me as a student of that same district, is this the same stuff that's been happening since I was a kid and since before. What 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 can you give them to actually even start to turn the corner for them to to start believing, right? Because they've lived here. They this this is they generations deep and they haven't been given any reason. I'm being I'm not trying to be flippant, but Mm -hmm. in the mass, right? They haven't really been given any reason to now all of a sudden have hope in this plan. So what would you say to them? 
So I think it's a combination of things. And I have had, um, you know, one of the reasons why some of the first school leadership moves that I made were in traditionally underperforming schools was because I needed folks to be able to see something different right now. If I had just a pool of like expert leadership teams that would go in and turn around 170 schools, I'd do it tomorrow. And I don't, but in the places where, I mean, literally like I got screamed at for like moving, you know, a principal and I had parents in tears saying, you know, at least we have somebody who loves our kids now. And <laughs> right, no, like for real, right? No, it's like, real. It's you real. know, and people screaming at me, and I didn't let, I made a decision that I wasn't going to just let my people take that meeting. And by that, I mean, you know, the new principal and whatever is like, no, I'm going to take the heat. And I remember a mother crying, and she said, You just don't understand what my child has been through. We changed the leadership, leadership team, whole team, and we were deliberate about it. Right. And literally some of those same people in September came up to me one sheepishly like, hey, Dr. S, how you doing? Are you still talking to me? And I was like, of course, I'm still talking to you. And they said, like, we did not know we could have somebody who would actually have both. Right. Who could love our kids and actually change what they were learning. Mm. Right. And so but you got to be able to. And I literally had to say to folks, you got to trust me. And what happens is when you do that in key places, then you gain trust. Right. Then then word begins to spread. But then just as easily you get a knucklehead. Right. Uh, Staff person who does something horrible to a family. And then now you've got a withdrawal. Right. So now it's like we trusted you. And I'm sure some of you all watch the footage when the heat, um, you know, the 80 schools went down on the heat. You know, I had somebody screaming at me saying, and we trusted you. We trusted you, right? I took up for you. And like that, I think people want to see that you are down there with them. And I got to tell you, like, this is the time to like leave your hubris behind. Like they don't need somebody. You don't get any brownie points for talking about how wonderful you did. You only get brownie points for saying you messed up. You messed up with somebody's kid. Now, let me let me fix it. Give me mm. a chance to fix it. And that happens regularly. Mm. Chris and Ray. Yeah, so for me, it's hard to understand how communities can build up that trust with superintendents because they see them come and go. And, you know, nationally speaking, not just in, in one district, but if you look nationally, this, the shelf life of a good superintendent is pretty short. Um, and, and they, there's revolving seats. They come in year one with a PowerPoint and a big plan. And they, in year two, they say it's too early to, to know what the results should be. And year three, they're looking for another job oftentimes, right? It's just a cycle you see in, in, in cities, big and small, as a matter of Mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's hard for communities over time to have anything but skepticism, um, and it's uh, that makes it hard for somebody who really does want to do the good thing, the right thing as a good superintendent or a chancellor or a CEO of an organization, because you can't put all your focus into just doing 
the critical work around curriculum instruction, how classrooms work, how teaching work, whatnot. You have to deal with the political level of it, the community politics, the, you know, the, the rest of the level. And you can't get all ships rowing in the same direction, right? Like right now, I'm really interested in, are you getting the full support of the city? Because I feel like all the leaders of Baltimore are, have children in their jurisdiction as their responsibility. And it can't be the schools sitting off in an island by themselves trying to solve things for children as if you're solely responsible for the children of Baltimore, right? <laughs> they oppress them and then say, schools, fix them. <laughs> schools, <laughs> fix them, right? So, and, and my thing is like, you, you, you can't be a mayor, you can't be a city council yeah. member, you can't be a state level representative who lives in, those, in that jurisdiction. Uh, you can't be a business leader, a business community, a clergy community or whatnot and feel as though children aren't in your jurisdiction. So my first question to you is, are you aptly supported by the rest of the leadership of of the city? And do they marshal the strength of their budgets and their resources and their manpower uh, uh, to support the work that you're doing? Yeah, feel free to blast whoever you need to blast. No, 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 no. Will the Republican please, please be quiet? No, this is a no Republican conversation right now, bro. I'm going to answer the question for her so she doesn't have to answer. No, she is not being supported. Okay. And that could be the answer in any city. Just if you, any city a superintendent can feel on an island, so. If you have background well, of her city. Well, but but I will say, in fairness, without having to. Oh, here it comes. Here comes the political right? answer. Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I got to stay long enough to make sure that you can read. Right? Um, but no, I will say this. it's It comes and goes. I mean, mm-hmm. I have folks that I could name when we had a $130 million budget gap. And I, you know, I probably can't name them either because then the folks I don't name will be upset. But I had folks who were like, we're going to make sure we get you something to close the gap. Mm-hmm. And it was behind closed doors. It was on the side. They're advocating, they're pushing. And some people would be surprised who they were mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and others would not. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, and you all know this, mm-hmm. there are the people who smile but when the doors closed, they're the ones slashing X and Y. They're the ones, you know, well, I don't know if it really takes all that, you know, and, 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 and the one thing that I love about this job is it teaches you, you cannot predict who will have your back. Mm-hmm. The people mm-hmm. who, wow. and I don't mean in a political way, I mean in ways that translate to the kids, right? Because I say all the time, my children will eat. This is not about that for me. And so part of it is the people who actually do believe and want something different for kids. But yeah, there's always personal agendas. Some of the folks people assume because their rhetoric says they're for kids. And, you know, I know I've had conversations with them where I want to say, yeah, the public knew what the real deal was. Mm-hmm. But I think that's also true, Chris, in every city, right? I that's don't true. think, I, I don't think that that's different. I just have been thankful that there have been people who have delivered and have been willing to deliver. For the it feels kids. like in some cities, you might have a mayor who's has an, 
has a special um, kind of dedication to the schools. And in some cases, they don't want any, you know, they wash their hands of it. Same thing with city council members and others. You know, one, one quick other question I have, because it's specific to something you've already touched on. I mean, you've worked for my heroes here. <laughs> you worked for Katie, worked for Bob Moses, yeah. you know, which yeah. might, but there's a sense of when I was on a school board years ago, we visited Baltimore because they were doing the student weighted funding mm-hmm. and they were a model for it. So school districts were visiting. Um, because it was the new thing that if we all just did this, everything else would be great. Um, we also um, brought some of the algebra, uh, algebra project people to the Twin Cities and basically said, you know, we need something like this here for our children of color. This is what we're missing in a very white space and, and state. But I want to bring it up to say, like, we had a sense that if we could only import those few things, you know, after going to Baltimore, all of our life would be better, right? Like all our schools would get better. Everything would change. And, and meanwhile, other districts were coming to us to do the study, study one piece of something also um, made me kind of cynical. What do you think about this idea that there are these all ideas floating around districts all have a one piece of it or whatnot, but it never all comes together for, for outcomes for kids. What's that look like it all coming together? Oh my gosh. Well, and it's what, it's what you mean by all coming together. Right. So like for me, and and I don't say in a disrespectful way, when people tell me they've got a really great school, I'm like, okay, yeah, but I know what one really great school looks like. And I know what it looks like to do that, but I don't know what it looks like yet. And I got to tell you, anybody who says they do, I really do believe they're lying (laughs) right now (laughs) because across 170 schools, where you have responsibility for every single child. I think we as a country have not gotten to the place where we are willing to put in what it takes to actually get to that level. Some of it is we don't know at scale. Like, you know, when people tell me, and and I know, like I know the black literacy rates around the great time of the great migration were actually higher than what they are now. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also know what counted as being literate then um, is not what it is now. And so to actually attempt to educate every single young person in a jurisdiction as large as Baltimore City at scale, I think the, the, the people I respect in this role know that it's not two or three things, Chris. Like they know, like if they call me, they're calling me about curriculum and they know they're calling about curriculum. Mm-hmm. I'm going like when I called, um, you know, when I sent some of our folks to, to dive deep into Chicago's principal stuff, it was for that. You know, Janice isn't saying everything's fixed with Chicago. Like every time I've talked to her, you know, Sharon Contreras isn't saying everything's fixed in Guilford. No, the people I respect aren't saying that. What they're saying is how do we move a a, a behemoth bureaucracy enough, right? Shake it during our watch Mm -hmm. so that it does some things better. And and I think we know where the big bets are placed. If you have to place a big bet on school leadership. Like if you don't place a big bet on that, I don't care what else you do. Mm -hmm. I believe that we neglected the curriculum and teaching arm. I think we just thought that would magically take care of itself. And it has not, it hasn't. You leave people alone in a room all day, they're gonna default to what they already believe about kids. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. if you don't set boundaries for that, that's what folks are gonna do. Do you and think so, it still makes sense to have these big districts? Oh, I mean, you, that is you know, the question. Do you think so? so? I mean, it, it feels like 
it feels like when American public schools scale, the best is failure. So maybe like descale is the new question yeah, for, for districts. Uh, and and that, that is the question. And I did, I said to, um, well, I, I said to another black reformer um, who was also a district lead. I'm not going to out the person here. Oh, let's hear the names. Who is it? Who is it? Was it? Let's Howard guess. Fuller. It was Howard Fuller. It, it was, was Howard Fuller. Fuller. Okay. All right. And, and, and I, I saw, we just passed. And this is the only thing I will say is I, I'll say what I said to him. Not what right. Right. And we'll call I, Howard for the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the- <laughs> <laughs> but I said to him, I said, I just want you to know, I know now why you left a district to go do what you do now, right? Mm -hmm. Like I get it because you get tired of the lift that it takes, but I still think you've got to have folks pushing on the large systems because for the foreseeable future, right? And everybody likes to talk about New Orleans. So you want me to be politically incorrect? Everybody likes to talk about New Orleans. Well, I sent some of our folks down. I had a couple black pastors who were like, we want to do New Orleans. We want to just, you know, do that whole thing. And I said, really, have you talked to your black colleagues in New Orleans? Talk to black pastors in New Orleans about how they feel about New Orleans and then come back to me. That's the wrong advice. And tell me <laughs> that's not who I would have them talk to. In oh, the come on. Are you kidding? As you like, you know, the way you do it, you import people in, you move people out just because, I mean, not because you've done anything. Like, yeah, that's fine. But isn't there a way to do this without decimating Black leadership in the way? That, that's, and I don't mean the city leadership, I mean the informal community leadership. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm just saying in Baltimore, Look, when I leave, I know why people are skeptical of large systems. And I think that's the right question. I just know where I'm sitting now. But I do. I think it's the right question. I do. I just know where I'm sitting now. Mm. All right. Gloves off. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Raymond. Here we go. For the the people listening, he actually took a glove off. He he took a glove. And he he took it off like stripper style. You see how he did that? He put his hand up like this. I'm I'm afraid for the brother right now. I'm I'm, I'm mad that you even know what stripper style glove taking off is. So so refocus. (laughs) Refocus. We got a guest today. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. So so when when this show hits his numbers, y'all know why. It's because me and Chris are back. Whatever. (laughs) So biggest barrier, what if I say your biggest barrier in Baltimore was Baltimore Teachers Union, what would you say? <sighs> that's not fair. And that's, that's not, listen, yeah. don't get me, don't get me, listen, I'm going to save you, Chris. This is about to defend the union. About, 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 about time you defended the union, Chris Stewart. I'm not even going to let you get away with that, though. <laughs> I'm not because you know for a fact that's not the biggest the biggest uh, you, challenge you, Chris, in Baltimore. Chris, have you have you? I'm gonna ask you this question. What have you ever taught in Baltimore? Have I taught in Baltimore? Yeah. Is this gonna become that silly question though? You do you even teach? No. Is that what this is no, about to be? N- never when oh, I do that. Okay. I would never disrespect right. your right. good intelligence then. like good that. Then. No, I haven't but, taught in Baltimore then. No, I have but not. I, but I did. Okay. Well, let me tell you this. Let me just tell you this real quick. We had someone from Baltimore mm-hmm. who came to help us in the Twin Cities. And said to me specifically, I have never seen so many teachers in my life who just can't teach. At least we had our problems in Baltimore, but at least we had people who knew who who could teach. Right. And that to us about us and our rich 
expensive schools that we have here where no one can teach. So anyways, I'm, I'm sorry. I did. If you want to answer that question, go ahead. I'm not going to take the, the no, off, of, off, I got off some. of Republican Ray. Go ahead, Ray. You go, you do your job, man. <laughs> All right. So, so you know what? I won't, I won't have you answer that question. No, I, go ahead. Cause now I know, I, I know, I know how things can be. I got better questions. Don't worry about it. All right. Go ahead. All right. We'll be so, the judge yet. So why so, why did you lead with your good? Never mind. Go ahead. I got, I, actually, no, I, it really wasn't leading with my good question. But anyway, I, brief, I got a question for you too. What the hell is a steel cobweb? <laughs> Bro, I was basically just describing like these steel cables that lock people <laughs> in from doing what they need to do. You know what I'm saying? That's your next best question, Ray. Right? Yeah, that is. Ray, that's your next best question. It was a question that I had for him. No, you're not gonna, look, hey, Chris, you're not gonna heckle. You're not, you're not gonna heckle. The only time I'm gonna let you heckle me is when you sign on at 859. <laughs> <laughs> I come late because I think you starting the, the show. <laughs> it's all good. I, 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 I love your energy. <laughs> Anyways. Right, you got a last, question for the CEO? The last, yeah, I guess. You know, he's going he to interrogate us. 50% of the previous mayors of your city have went down in scandal. Uh, Catherine Pugh, Sheila Dixon, who will probably win again. What kind of problems and difficulties do you think on the local level in comparison to what you need for the school? Like, what kind of problems do you think that that kind of corruption that we view from, like, nationwide uh, pits against you? Well, I think it, I think it's, it just contributes to a lack of expectation for the city. I think it, it's demoralizing. I mean, look, our kids feel it. You know, our kids feel it. Mm. And to say that they don't, would not be honest. I mean, it's part of, you know, and this is not a pitch or whatever, but, but just to say like part of why we started the Be More Me kind of units of study around the history of Baltimore was because I very deliberately wanted our students to hear some other narrative, some other news about the strength of their city. And it, it is one of the things we've gotten the best student, one of the, the best student feedback about from a curricular standpoint is actually learning about that. And I, and I say that to say it, it is challenging. It, it absolutely is challenging. No city wants to be caught up in, um, you know, any kind of corruption or scandal. I will tell you, though, it does make it easier to make the case that, look, let me focus on getting the schools together because we got a lot of other things going on in this city, right? That folks need need to give focused attention. Don't all just like jump to education when we've got transportation issues. We have a police commissioner who needs support and bringing down, you know, the crime rate. Like, bring me to a table where we all talk together. But I will say it does guard against, at least for me, not for individuals, but it guards against micromanagement. But it, it makes it hard. It makes it hard. For it goes back to that thing that I said earlier about just a lack of belief, right? Like, here we go again, another mm, scandal. Mm-hmm. Here we go again, you know, another instance of black leadership gone bad. That that does not help. It, it doesn't help. And it's why, you know, I tell my people, I don't want to add to that narrative. So keep your stuff tight. Right. And even with that, I can't do that over 10,000 employees, but it does, it does make it hard. It makes it harder to get money. 
<laughs> right? Because then people, you know, I'm talking about, you know, money to make sure we have infrastructure in buildings and all that. And people automatically go to, oh, y'all are doing something with the money. Mm-hmm. The money's mm-hmm. got to be going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's because of a lot of this, this other narrative, these other occurrences. So no, it does not help. And it destabilizes the city. Do you know, we, we, I, I use this term awful guising all the time. We awful guys our children. We awful guys our cities. We awful guys things to death. It becomes sport. It becomes something we get good at. Um, I wonder if, do you have any, when you look across your schools, I know you have to be the, the, the leader of all those schools, but do you have ones where you just, um, you know that they're beating the odds. You know that if people saw them, they would be, it would change the narrative. Yeah. Let, yeah. Me, let me answer that question for you. Jesus, Ray. What are you Thomas, doing? You listen, 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 let's just stop. Let's just interview Ray. Let's just interview Ray. Hey, I've done, about I've done Baltimore. research. I've done research for <laughs> her. Bro, I, I pay taxes in Baltimore. Oh my goodness, man. Thomas Johnson <laughs> Elementary School. Yes. Park Elementary School. Hamden Elementary School. Haddison mm-hmm. Park Public Charter School. Lakeland Elementary School, Hampton Hill Academy, yep. Turnbridge Public Charter School, yep. Royal Elementary Middle, yep. Hamilton Elementary. Why are you just reading the list of schools? What, what, Bro, are they those, good? Those are, yes. Oh, okay. What's wrong with you? I couldn't tell you. It just sounds like you're going down the list. Thomas Jefferson High. I mean, and, 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 and Washington. And excuse <laughs> us, Ray. Our bad for doing research for the the guests and not you. My bad. I mean, you know, we. <laughs> Ray, I, I have to think for my next few questions for you, Ray. I'm working on it. City High School, Holly, Western City hey. Neighbors High School. So the, these are um, these are these are like beat the beat the odds schools, like schools that are you know doing a good job. Yeah, they're a combination. And Ray, you tell me if you agree or not. But I would say that some of those are a combination of beating the odd schools. And some of those are schools where the demographic uh, drives. Right. So like, Ray, would you agree that, you know, Roland Park, if we were going to look at achievement gaps (laughs) or any of that might have. Okay, you're laughing. So I'm I feel like I'm okay on that. Yeah. so some I, of them are driven, are driven by that. Well, and I mean the ones specifically, I mean the ones, you know, that back in the day, when I say beating the odds, I mean a school that honestly is outperforming the demographics of the yes. school or the oh, drivers yeah. or the poverty. Absolutely. And generally what I usually would bet to find in a school like that is a staff, a staff that has been together a long time, yeah. a coherent educational philosophy in the building, yes. a decent school leader who understands mm-hmm. that they need to always have an edu- a, a coherent educational philosophy yeah. and possibly, but not always possibly a decent relationship beyond the school walls um, mm-hmm. vocally. But I think it happens different ways. And do you know what that secret sauce is? <laughs> is that, did I just describe a piece of it? Or when you oh, see yeah. those schools, you know, no, is that you, what you, you th- That's absolutely what they have. And mm-hmm. what's great about that list of schools that, that Ray uh, read off, a lot of those schools are schools that when we do our in-district comparison, right? So same student, say, uh, same profile of student in terms of previous performance and match them up against those schools, those schools do a far better job, right? They mm-hmm, just, mm-hmm. based on years of achievement and the whole 10 yards. The question, which I know you're asking, right, is is where, where are the others? We have some that are fast growing, right? So we have one, um, Dave Guzman over at Mary E. Rodman. Um, in two years, their 
uh, proficiency rates jump 10, 15%. And it's not, not just the, the jump in test scores. You know, I got a grandmother saying to me, my fourth grade grandson for the first time can actually read, which is, you know, mm-hmm. abysmal in the mm-hmm. sense that, my mm-hmm. God, why did mm-hmm. we take that long? Mm-hmm. But, you know, in a year and a half, she's like, my baby can now read. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't before. And so that school won't make the list yet, won't make Ray's list yet. But in a few years, they will. But the trajectory of growth, um, Henderson Hopkins School. Um, new principal there last year, some of the biggest gains mm-hmm. in the district in terms of growth. And what did they do? They brought in a team. And that's the big thing for me. Like I have two turnaround principals now in two of our high schools. And I have, you know, CEO has always had some discretion about just moving staff. And I told them at the end of the year, I said, you tell me five people you need moved that'll help you get your job done. And I move them. Oh, Lord. Right? And I say, right. well, tell- damn. Well, yeah, because, you know, they're <laughs> taking on challenging schools. And so, you know, some of them can do it on their own and others, I was like, we just don't have time for it. Move the person someplace else, you know, until we can get them either out or somebody with somebody. But we just can't, you know, we can't do that. And that's what I mean by focusing on the schools that are the fur have been the furthest behind. This mm-hmm. might be sacrilege to say, but I've called two char- charter operators since I've been here to take on two schools. And Ray, you probably know where they are. Um, you know, Frederick Elementary, you know where Frederick is? Yep. Frederick and Ray can attest to this. Frederick Elementary has been, I don't want to say generationally underperforming because that's probably disrespectful, but for a long time, it has mm-hmm. been mm-hmm. underperforming. They got a new 21st century building. And I was like, no, we don't have the time as a district with all these schools to go deep in a community that deserves more than just a new building. And so I turned it over to one of our local charter operators. I said, are you willing to do the turnaround on it? They did. First three, four months were crazy, but they were going to be crazy. Whoever was in there. The difference was the amount of people and specialist support they could deploy to that school. The test scores haven't popped yet, but I'll tell you, I went into that first grade class in January of last year. And half those first graders were actually reading. And I will tell you, right, that that was not happening before. And that's why Ray is doing all that, because he knows. Right. And I had a video of a young African-American student. This is what I call the charter operator. Say, y'all all right over there. Um, and but again, this is where the accountability and I saw a young African-American uh, boy in fourth grade, who was literally jumping from the new bookshelf. And I was, mm. you know, I called to say, what's going on? Da, da, da. I went there seven months later. That same little boy who was jumping the bookshelves was sitting in the second row when I did a read aloud on the uh, African-American quilting tradition. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he was raising his hand, telling me mm-hmm. about the field trip when he went to the Reginald Lewis Museum and mm-hmm. he knew where the quilts were. And um, the principal, uh, African-American man who's so soft spoken, came over to me and he said, you see that young man over there? That's the one you saw in the video hopping the bookshelf in the middle of the day. Now that, right? that, that's a very inspiring story that makes me angry. 
But I'm going to turn it back over to my, to my fellows. But let me okay. tell you why it does, because yeah. Yeah. we get so lost in educational essentialism, which basically tells us if you're poor and you come from a family that isn't together and you go to a school with a bunch of other kids that aren't like that, that there aren't, there aren't going to be these gains. There, you can, there's nothing you can do, really. It becomes very nihilistic. Like there's just, mm-hmm. you, you can't, it doesn't matter if you change the principle, if the teachers are good, if the curriculum is bad, if the pedagogy is all jacked up, if they have books or not or whatever. It only matters that we've, you've already told us what their background is. So we've already made a determination that no matter what you say, you're not really seeing it. You're not really seeing progress or changes mm-hmm. because you've made, that becomes essentialism and it's really bad for our kids. It hurts us because we see stories like this. People ask me all the time, do I visit schools or do I see, and I do all the time, which is the thing that makes me even more hard driving about reform because I see some really good things and some really bad things. And I know that they make a difference for the exact same kid. You can put them in building A or building B and they will have different lives regardless of who they are. Well, and it's funny you said that because we talked about at our opening leadership meeting in August, um, trajectory changing. And I don't know if you all have seen, if you haven't, Mm. Um, you may want to, but I used the the New York Times from the, oh Lord, I can't remember, you know, the study on economic mobility that they did with kids by race who had grown up in a certain socioeconomic category. Yeah, the interactive and, one was just yes, dropping. They, yeah. mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I love that mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. You know, with the dots, let me tell yeah. you, I showed the dots in an auditorium full of principals and teacher leaders and it was quiet. And, and for I, our listeners, the dots are, the, oh, for sorry. people listening and don't know it, yeah. the yeah. dots basically showed that black children being raised in upper middle class families and wealthy families fall out of the upper middle class. And and um, the, regardless of their more advantaged position in life, they fall out way faster than, than white people and go straight to the bottom um, like everybody else. So being born into wealth isn't the thing that makes the game changer. Yeah. In education for, for yep. black folks, for black folks, yep. for black folks. It's just not. Um, no, and I'm glad. Thank you for doing that little piece. But that but that's that's what we talk about is like, are you are you changing? Are we changing trajectories? I cannot change that. I don't know that young man who was hopping bookshelves home life. I hope that other city uh agencies and leaders are working on what it's going to take to support that family. But in the meantime, I do know that that baby can read now. And, you know, Ray knows, you all know that that doesn't, you know, books don't stop bullets. I get it. But let me tell you something. You have so much more when you can read the books and when you can do that. And that's, that's how I operate. I don't have time to fixate on all the things that could go wrong. I need us to do what we can do and that frankly we're charged to do. Police department's not charged with helping kids to read. We're supposed to, we're supposed to do that. And so let's us do what we're supposed to do well and then we can go pick on everybody else about what they're not doing. But mm-hmm. for now, and you know, I do pick on other people and you know, I have a BMI bonnet about transportation here because I, I think it is apartheid type transportation in this city. It is crazy. Ray may agree or not, but it's ridiculous how long it takes people to get to work. But if you can't read, it doesn't matter whether you can get to work. Mm. And that's, so, you know, I'm with you on that. I I really actually don't have time for those arguments. Like they're great. If you're sitting in a Columbia lecture hall, 
<laughs> Grace cool. Dodge. Grace you know, Dodge. Grace Dodge. There you go. Like that's great, but I don't I don't really have time for that. I really don't. Like, yes, it's a lovely thing to do maybe afterwards, uh, work on family policy, but for right now, I we have oversight over what we have oversight. We have a lot we could be doing a lot better. All right, Ray, Mr. Gloves off. I saw your glove come off earlier. What you, what you got, man? What you so got? I, you he, I he just, took it off to hand it to her, apparently. I don't know. <laughs> listen, listen. So what I do want to say is this. Yes. I offered this to, uh, to the superintendent in Las Vegas. If you have five, I don't want to say underperforming, but like principals that are in need of mentorship. Yeah. You send them my way, pro bono, oh, because oh, of my because of my love for Baltimore. I I actually live there in the summer. Where are the gloves, brother? What is happening? <laughs> what is going on right now? <laughs> Man, she's a alum. I can't go out there. Oh my god! Oh. So, so okay. <laughs> all right. Oh, come on. So, don't worry about it. Yes, Ray had his chance. It's he all did good. Have his chance. So yeah. nationwide, a little more than a third of eighth graders are proficient in reading and math. All right. So about a third of fourth graders are proficient in reading while more than 40% of fourth graders are proficient. Uh, But in Baltimore, in math, 39% of of Maryland fourth graders and 33% of eighth graders were at or above proficiency compared with 42% and 33% in 2017, respectively. So there's been a drop, right? So if we're talking about where these numbers are now, with your emphasis on literacy, and also we want kids to, to, to be able to do math as well, like what's going on there? And uh, what's your plan yeah. around it? You were looking at yeah, white so, kids. The data that you just gave. I gave, I gave, so basically, and that data came from CBS Local, right? I'm talking about just in general, though, like, you know, I know there's like goals that you set. And I know there are also things that, like you just said earlier, when you were talking about Chicago and, 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 and other places, is that, look, we haven't fixed everything. There are some things that we're specifically working on. And I'm sure that these scores and the, like these levels of achievement is one of them. So let us know how's that going mm-hmm. and, and uh, how are you feeling about it? And we'll give you the floor on that piece. Yeah. So, so with regards to math, uh, one of the things is it's inter- great timing actually for asking the question, because I met with our math team probably two weeks ago and then followed up with our head of math. And I think part of, what we're seeing there is one, yes, we have this new curriculum, mm-hmm. uh, but the teachers need support in figuring out how you use a really rigorous curriculum with kids, uh, with students that are, you know, three years behind. So that's one. I think two, our overall teacher support and teacher development. Um, structure. We've gotten feedback from teachers and there's, there's some adjustments we need to make in that. And so part of what we're looking at now is what does a more teacher friendly, um, what I would say kind of adult, adult learning research influenced system of professional learning look like beyond, you know, as you all noted, you know, the PowerPoints. And I think it was you, Chris, you know, the superintendents have PowerPoints, professional development people have them too. And we know that that's not how people learn, um, whether they're teachers or anybody else. And so we're, we're trying to shift to a more kind of in class, in school 
um, type of professional learning. In math, though, you know, I can't remember, but it was some, I mean, I was aghast when I saw the data. Like our, if you look at our current now math teachers, the numbers of them who actually have a math background are like less than 20%. Hmm. And, you know, I'm sure my human capital person, if when they listen, will be sending me what the actual figures are. But I mean, it, it was staggering. And, you know, I sat there and thought, well, wait a minute, how could we be even with more rigorous college and career ready aligned curriculum, expect that to move everybody if we have so many folks who need their own math development, right? So I think it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we are attending to it. And, and some of it is we have had a deep focus on literacy. We have. I, I, you, just, you, you just put something out there that's really important. That's big, though. And I think yeah. the reason that nobody wants to talk about it is there's not an easy, quick fix to the fact that our workforce is, it's not the one you would have hired today, starting today fresh, that you, if you had this, this group of kids that we have today, everybody says all the time in education, if you had to design a system today, you wouldn't have designed the one that we have, the one that everybody inherits and works with. Well, they talk very little bit about how you, you wouldn't design the teaching force, the workforce that we have to need this much remediation based upon who the kids that they're teaching. You mentioned New Orleans. And I want to go back to that real quick. With, with New Orleans, has <laughs> I should have kept my mouth closed. About no, New Orleans has a very veteran <laughs> teaching force. People don't know that anymore. But really? they, they have one of the blackest teaching forces in the United States. Yes, they oh, did lose a group of their teachers. But what Pete, nobody really tells you is after Katrina, when all them teachers came back, yeah. to the most corrupt system there had been in the United States, a third of the teachers couldn't pass a basic skills test when they gave them one. Gave them one. Oh, the ones that could pass it actually could barely pass it. And, 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 and we don't really want to talk about things a like that. A pass is a pass, bro. A pass is a pass. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> a pass is a pass, bro. Yeah, no. If you, you, make the, you make a minimum on the practice, you get certified. A pass well, is let's a just pass. Put it, let's just put it this way. A pass on a basic t- test is one thing, right? So if you can't pass a basic test, that's a real problem. That's a, that's a huge problem. If you can only pass a basic test, but you can't pass one that shows mastery within, within the content area that you are teaching in, that becomes an additional problem. Uh, so, so I only wanted to bring it out there because there's no easy fix for that. That's something that in Oakland, you're going to have that problem. Mm-hmm. In Los Angeles, you're going to have that problem. In Baltimore, you're going to have that problem. And there's no easy fix for it. But yet, black parents are turning their kids over every morning to schools that are still trying to figure out how to teach black children. Still, as of this year, people in our circles are passing around articles talking about teachers don't even know how to teach reading. They're not t- and it's not that they're bad people. It's just that the system hasn't caught up with the science but the science has been around for a long time. As a parent reading that, as someone who's not an educator, is a, is a home person, a person with kids, a dad, that scares me to death that that could even be a problem, that for years the science was ahead of where the, the institution is. Yeah, but it's not my child. Yeah, it's not catching up. It's ignoring. Yes, I would agree. Really? Well, damn, that makes I, me I even more agree. scared. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the scary part. I would agree, wow. and it is scary. Yep. Wow. Wow. I agree. I agree. Well, and I mean, I will tell you as CAO, when my oldest was going through first grade um, and was it first? Or, oh, it was kindergarten. It was kindergarten into first. And her, she had a substitute teacher for three months and, and she loved kindergarten. 
wonderful kindergarten teacher, firming classroom, whole 10 yards. That teacher was gone for three months. I knew that her reading trajectory would fall off a cliff with three months at that time. And I pulled her home. I did phonics around the table. I did my own phonemic awareness. Teacher came back. She had jumped four levels in three months. Wow. Right. And when I went to her first grade teacher the next year and she looked over her record and she said, she jumped, Catriel jumped from here to here. And she turned to me and she said, you must have been teaching her during that time. And I said, I did. And she asked, what did you use? And, you know, I'm fine to say this. I pulled, I pulled some homeschooling stuff off the internet and did it at home as CAO. And that was my first time in the district because I was not going to let that happen. And I agree that it is people ignoring it. Like I had, I remember telling my girls, don't come home and tell me somebody told you to look at the picture, picture yeah. <laughs> to figure out the word. And I literally made them go over, pull my dissertation off the shelf Open, open the <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I said, find me a picture. Mm-hmm. Find me a picture. There is no picture in here. What are you going to do when the picture has gone? And you know how kids are. But the teacher said, I said, I'm just telling you in this house, we look at pictures as wonderful additions to the story, but we look at words to do it. And that's when as a CAO, I realized, oh my God, like what the heck are we doing? I mean, this was my kid's school. And so it's part of why when I came back, and that was near the end of my CAO tenure, as soon as I came back, I was like, oh, heck no. We, we had started it when I left. And when I returned, it was, and I gave, my literacy people will tell you, and I have some good literacy people. I said, you, if you want to continue doing that other stuff you were doing, there are plenty of school districts who will welcome you with open arms. You just can't do that here. Don't send them to Philly. We, we're trying to do real literacy. You see, <laughs> good for you. Well, where are you going to send them, though? See, y'all. Yeah, send them to Minnesota. Them? They wealthy. They, they got money. <laughs> Wait a second, They can, mitig- let me, they let can let mitigate all of that it. stuff. Let me say, right. Minnesota's so, so, where they come from, bro. That's right. where they come uh, from. Uh, okay. Send them to y'all. We order, 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 order. <laughs> Water. water. You saying water? What are you saying? You thirsty? <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> oh, oh um, order. All right. <laughs> the last park park results. Thirty five percent of thirty five percent of white kids didn't meet expectations, compared to sixty six point eight percent of black kids. Mm-hmm. That's ELA for math. Thirty nine point four percent of white kids did not meet expectations, compared to seventy one percent of black kids. So, white kids in the District are doing better than black kids. Wait a second. That is that the district or is that the state? That's the district, bro. That's the district. It, that's the district. Huh. What's park what's results? Wrong with you, man? Wow. Like, well, no, bro. you saying park results, so it's making me think something different, but all right. Oh um, yeah. going wow. on, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm dissertating yeah. right now, so I'm really focusing on uh yeah, yeah. Nada. So uh so um yeah, so what what's what's happening with the with the black kids? Well, and that's, let me tell you, Raymond, like that, that's the piece why we started the equity work where we did. And it's part of, um, you know, the question that we raise. I will say when we look at clusters of where the newest teachers are, the newest teachers tend to teach the uh, lowest SES kids. And in Baltimore, those are overwhelmingly black kids, right? Um, 
the other piece with that is like we've asked ourselves the question, um, how do we tackle this in the moment expectation piece that curriculum itself can't change, right? Because you can you can water it. Like if you don't fundamentally have the belief that kids can do it, and in some cases, you know, you have less skilled teachers or less veteran teachers. And I mean, veteran good teachers, not the ones who need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's harder, right? Like it's, it's harder as a first year teacher to get your head around everything you've got to get it around. And then what we found was high turnover. So in my human capital office looked at a lot of those schools that are higher concentrations of young people from lower SES backgrounds, and I would say generational poverty in some instances, they were more likely to have higher teacher turnover. They were more likely to have um, the most novice teachers. They were more likely to have change in leaders over a shorter period of time. And so there's some kind of brass tacks, things like that, that contribute. Um, But then the other piece is digging into some of what we were seeing in classrooms, even in places um, with higher incomes, right? And this gets to, you know, the whole uh, progressive liberal neighborhood, right? Even in Baltimore, and there might not be as many, but you see that racial divide there. And so, you know, a lot of the work is beginning in like my neighborhood, right? Like at Rowan Park and black parents there had a fit when they saw some of that same gap data and part of what we're trying to get underneath and what that principal along with other principals are trying to do is to get underneath. What are the things when the door is closed, Mm. right? When you get down to teacher student relation uh, interaction around content, what are the ways that we are pushing the trajectory down for black students. And those are, you know, those are uncomfortable and hard conversations for people to have. And so we've started, we are not nearly where we need to be, but yeah, no, we saw the gap. And actually, if you look at our increases, our fastest increasing uh, population of students are actually our uh, Latinx students. Mm. Um, And so, you know, we're asking that question as well. So what are we doing with our Latino students that they're that they are moving more rapidly, but our black students aren't giving, you know, we're not getting we're not getting the bump. And we've started looking at who are the classroom teachers who are getting the results with those same populations of kids. Now that's um, dangerous because, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to open up a bunch of questions about how do you determine that they're doing better? What instrument do you use? Is it good? You know, that sort of thing. Well, um, I'm just yeah, doing yeah. growth yeah, and yeah. go visit their classrooms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a common thing is those kids work for those teachers. Well, I've, two things like one, you started this out by saying you guys want to do the equity work and came up with the equity plan. And I just wish we would outlaw the word equity because it's, it's, <laughs> it's like to me, it's become like aloha. You don't know whether it means hello or goodbye anymore. More. It just, it just, wow. it just, it just, the word itself has lost so yeah. much power because yeah. people who are pushing the most inequitable things do it through an equity plan, oftentimes yeah. cynically do it and, yeah. uh, and do it to communities. But um, I, I had read in, in prep for uh, an article that said you had a school, uh, it, it was an article about schools that had serious achievement gaps in the same school in Baltimore, mm-hmm. like wide gaps between white and black in the same school. And one was like 75% proficiency for black kids or, or for white kids, but for black kids, it was only like three. 
uh, I want to say three or four percent. Oh, like it was school or something like that. And yes, yes. My eyes popped out of my head. This cannot be true. <laughs> like, um, what's behind the in school gaps that you see? Well, and I think that's why we had to ask ourselves a question. And it's and it's cutting across. So the green school actually that data came out as part of the charter review, right? So for those people who don't know, in Baltimore City, we actually authorize the charters. The Green School is a charter school. The Green School is widely considered a very successful charter school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what we do in our charter renewal process is we actually make charter schools report out on those gaps. And, you know, yes, we have other gaps in the district, but when I saw that, I gasped. <clears throat> and I was like, are you, you know, are you kidding me? Um, but to the school's credit, they, you know, they came to the renewal meetings and like owned that this was clearly something they had missed. And wait a you know, second, wait a second. They missed that <laughs> they missed that three percent, three percent of the black kids were proficient in that school. You know what? If it wasn't for charter school accountability, meaning you have to come and sing for your dinner and answer for things like that, I don't know that I, listen, I hope they caught it. I hope they caught it. 3% of your black kids are reading. 75% of your white kids are. And they didn't catch it to, and what do y'all do? Every five years? Like they didn't, yes, that was going right. on for five years. Then they're like, oh, hey, we got black kids who aren't learning. Like, I mean, is it, was it like just three kids and those three kids, or is it like a very diverse? I mean, I'm just trying to get an understanding. Like the A, the a Black Hands podcast is a charter friendly podcast. But we, 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 Black child. Yeah, I mean, uh, regardless of what kind of school podcast. you are, if that, well, that's, that's the case, we about mm -mm. So, black so, kids education. So we've been going for a while. I'm about to wrap us into our into our final thoughts. So Reef, uh, wrap this into your final thoughts, um, and then we'll go around the horn and 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 we'll leave uh, our good CEO uh, to to give us her final thoughts at the end. Yeah, well, I mean, one that you, as Chris mentioned, superintendent um, in a in a in a city who's, who stayed, I think about like Dr. Marcus Foster and the, and the, uh, you know, the first black superintendents yeah. in the country. And, and, you know, sometimes when I, when I see, uh, you know, people like you, I'm just like, it hasn't been that long since black folks have been given that type of leadership. It's been long, but not long. Right. Like, and so, um, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing I think is, you know, for all the folks who, you know, are constantly, uh, you know, harping about things like, you know, just reform, you know, things like TFA, they don't stay. Well, here's a, here's a person who stayed, continued to stay and continue to, um, you know, to push. And, you know, I was just in Baltimore a couple of weeks ago, actually visiting some of your schools. And so, oh my gosh. You know, yeah, yeah. Great. Um, I don't, I don't remember all of them. When I was Ojima. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Kipu, Kipujima, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kipujima. And, and, um, so, you know, I, I would say you, you lifted up some things that we all talk about a lot of times, you know, teacher preparation, principal effectiveness, racial biases, um, are some of the major things that barriers to, to our, our children. So I would just encourage you to keep pushing, you know, blast that's, them, you know, that's what's okay. up. Ray, where are your final thoughts, brother? Reef, stop name dropping on the show, bro. Every week you name dropping, bro. What what name did he drop? Uh, what, did he me, say? what name did I drop? 
Did okay, you say the school? Me? Wait a minute, you went, you went down a list of 23 schools. Right. Don't even go over three. Don't go over three. responded to this nonsense. Don't, don't give it oxygen. Don't do it. Fires need oxygen to live, bro. Ray, what is your final thought? That's not even a fire. That's like quicksand in the old bad movies. Oh, you know what I mean? Where it's just. <laughs> what? Okay. Ray, can I have so, your final thought, please? Sure, sure. <laughs> so, so, Dr. S. Thank you for uh, for what you're doing for the city of Baltimore. You're doing an amazing job, and um, I, 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 I went, one of the things that I would say and push you to do yeah, is that please. use don't say a, use you as a mentor. Please don't say that. No, no, no. Okay. Baltimore County guy in Baltimore County they they have some they have a lot of schools that are like in the top fifty in terms of uh, upward trajectory park scores. Use them as a resource. Send some of those city teachers over to Baltimore County. Make some partnerships and stuff. Think outside the box. You could do that. You went to Columbia. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. That's what's up. Uh, Chris, final thoughts for you, brother. Um, I definitely have you in our prayers. Um, and, and will, uh, put you in my, my group of education leaders that I pray for each day. It makes a lot of sense for me to do that because I feel like a couple of things about your, the role and the position that you're in, that the, the more true to the work that you really do want to be, the, the, the more you can be a target for, um, backlash and, and, and I, I can give you a short list. I'm sure that you don't need my list, but I can give you a short list of, uh, especially women of color leaders in districts who've been run out of town and replaced with mediocre do-nothing people. And it was all because they were pushing to do the right thing. And sometimes doing the right thing is what gets you the, the most politics um, on your doorstep. Um, and I think it's a problem because mediocrity is rewarded with, with long tenures and sometimes wanting to do the, the real thing quickly, or at least at the speed of justice, um, is, is not rewarded. As a matter of fact, it's, it's punished. So God bless you for the role that you're taking on here, especially being as clear as you are knowing that it's not going to, it's not something you're doing for the power or the prestige and and knowing it's a one-time deal and knowing that you're indigenous to the place where you're doing this. So I appreciate it. Um, I think you understand what, if some of our, uh, some of our listeners are cynical as I am, about the the um, about predicting success for any district like yours, because the institutional stasis has been so deep. The number of of false starts and great plans has been in, tough on communities and tough on people. Um, but thank you for coming here. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for all that you do. You're bringing a fresh lens to the game, uh, and I appreciate it. And call on the eight black hands if anybody ever needs to catch some hands. Right. Like you ever need somebody need to catch some hands. People know to call us. Right. We'll we'll even pull up. You know, we'll get we have a reserve army. So we'll get like 80 black hands if we have to. Right. So, I hear that. Right. I right. Hear. Uh, th- thank you so much for coming. Uh, I know you do a lot of work around the whole child. Um, I started my career as a social worker. I think um, Wait, we didn't even talk about that. The whole child. She talked about it earlier in the. Uh, oh, are there, are there the, districts teaching a part of the child? Just well. Partial children? <laughs> Partial children. Right. Uh, are, they, are there people just touching? I'm teaching the foot. I'm, I'm, I'm just teaching the hand. It, what, what do you mean a whole child? What does that mean? All right. I'm sorry. I'm interrupting. It's all good. No, it's all good. Okay. But talk, okay. talking about wholeness, and I mean, and that that's a lot of what my research and my work is around, is around yeah. building student agency and making sure that they are leaving whole. And I think just, you know, 
I appreciate you coming. And one of the things, and I think that you push back on people about this as well, sometimes people use that in, in order to excuse what's happening academically um, as opposed to saying, um, yo, like we need to do both, right? These teaching a whole child or wholeness, like a, a kid leaving whole, is not mutually exclusive of, oh, it's either high academics or they are okay mentally and, and, and socially, even if they got a lot of things happening outside the home. And so one of the things that I just, because I, I don't want people to take those words and be like, yo, yeah, that's what we're working on, the whole child. Um, that also means being really good at at teaching young people while also being able to see the other needs that they have. Um, but again, thank you so, so much um, for being here. And I'll leave the final thought and word to you. And also please let people know how to contact you just in case they do want to offer support. Sure. No, no, no. Well, first, and I will just say how reaffirming it is to have a show you know, ministry, whatever, however you all see the full complement of what you do, um, of eight black hands, four black men, um, who are focused on this issue. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, um, learned from my dad, unfortunately, was that, you know, being a black man in this country means that, you know, people often don't see the, positive contribution, the commitment, all of those things that folks don't want to talk about because they want to talk about the other. And just know that it matters. Like even when you all bring hard questions and you guys weren't nearly as hard as I thought you were going to be tonight. But um, <laughs> when, when you... When we you write you back. <laughs> oh, yeah, see, and then you can really go after it. But, but, but please do, like continue to hold us accountable continue to push on um, these questions. Our community, our kids, um, our educators need you all to keep doing what you're doing. And even when it's not comfortable, it, it is, it, it's the right work. And so really when I was like, wow, I get to be on, you know, eight black hands, that, that was a big deal for me um, because of how I see you all tapping into what, most educational establishment wants to ignore. And that is members of our community who care about the education of our young people. And, and I'll just close with this, that, that part of why I am as serious as I am about this work and, you know, look, you don't do everything perfectly. I don't, you know, we have so many places we have to get better, but I refuse to negate the power of Black people to educate our own children and to be able to contribute to a system knowing better how to do this. And, and I will tell you, I am in rooms with colleagues who I have great respect for, who when I say things like, you know, there, there actually is a traditional of excellence in Black education. Now, it may not have made it right to your you know, what you studied in ed school, <laughs> but like, don't get it twisted. Black people had figured out how to educate our own children. We just unfortunately, right, ha had a lot of that stripped away because we wanted them to have, we wanted our babies to have access to more resources, but don't get it twisted, right? <laughs> like we actually had a lot of the know-how of how to do this 
that, you know, wrongly or rightly, sending kids to people who didn't know them or believe in them, mm. push that knowledge to the side. So I don't want us to think that we are on some kind of journey that heretofore has never been made, right? We have done this. We just have to do it at scale. And I'm going to go as long and hard as I can. And then, you know, y'all can have me back when I say bye-bye. Um, it won't <laughs> be won't be anytime soon. I've got a great board. And so, but you know, it is what it is till it isn't. But um, I, I I love the questions. And keep, like I said, just keep bringing it because we, we do need, we do need the push. And how can good. folks reach you? Uh, let's see. Give them a um, fake number. Don't have all these people uh, calling you. Don't be <laughs> You're busy. You have a comms guy. That's why you have a comms person. It goes. I don't want them inundated Shout either. Shout out to your comms guy. Yo, he's on it. Shout out to the comms guy. <laughs> I will. I will tell Andre. Well, Andre Riley, you can definitely give folks Andre's number because he can. To my listener, Andre don't want to talk to y'all. Exactly. <laughs> Just like we go, this is we gonna tell the truth here. This is gonna be real. We'll give you Andre's number, but Andre don't want to talk to y'all. Yeah, I don't know him. I don't know him personally. I'm guessing yeah. though. And, and, and if somebody so. got some support or some finances yeah. to help these kids, oh yeah, reach out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Reach out to their comms guy. That's different. Um, If you want to be a part, if I'm going to sell it for you. I got you. If you want to be a part of the change happening in Baltimore and Uh making sure that the entire child gets taught, meaning that they can actually read and we're working on other stuff and you got Mm -hmm. some bread, reach out out to the district. Uh, Her comms guy is named... Andre Andre. Riley. And his email address... Is uh, you're good because I don't have it, Charles. But I will tell okay. you, you can send it to CEO, um, which is a larger email for me. But if you send it to CEO um, at Balta uh, at Balta, BCPS dot K twelve dot MD dot US, if you send it there, then I will get it. And if that doesn't work for you, you can call Andre. Sounds good. You all have been listening to another episode of the Eight Black Hands. I'd like to thank our amazing guest. She did an amazing job. And we will see you all next week. Peace. Thank you all. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecki, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening. 